In the beginning of the history of experimental observation or any other kind of observation on scientific things, it's intuition. It's intuition. Which is really based on just experience with everyday objects that suggest reasonable explanations for things. Welcome to Two Shrinks Pod. My name is Hunter Mulcair, and this is a podcast all about psychology. This episode, we're continuing on with our summer programming where we're taking a break from our usual focus on disorders and covering some different topics, perhaps some lighter topics. Currently, the Australian Open is on in town, and it got me thinking about how you as a psychologist would work with a professional athlete to prepare for an event of that size or of any other kind of sporting event. And so I decided to invite a colleague who uh, has been on the show before to come back. He works as a sports psychologist. His name is Michael Inglis. And uh, yeah, welcome to Two Shrinks Pod. Thanks, Hunter. Thanks for having me. So I can't keep up with all the clubs and sports that you work with. Do you want to give us a little rundown on... Uh, I guess some of the sports psychology work that you do. Okay. I mean, it's probably just easy if we just go to the current ones. So my current club or internal role, uh, as we call them, uh, is with Western United, the new A-League franchise. Yep. And they're the club I'm currently looking after. That's um, uh, soccer. Soccer, that's right. Well, football, oh. when you're working there, it's good football. <laughs> Sorry, football. Uh, <laughs> yeah, 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 you have to really change your language. Uh, <laughs> so first rule of thumb in sports psychology is know the language and, and know the culture. Yep. This is my first football gig, so I only call it football from now on. you working with all? We saw the association, so AFL Players Association, the Rugby Union Association, yep. um, Cricket Association, yep. and just recently did a whole lot of work for FICA, which is the, the International Cricket Association as well. Yeah, right. It's been really interesting kind of work, doing a lot of the wellbeing curriculum for the countries that can't afford to write it for themselves. So Australia and South Africa and England have contributed to that and... That's kind of been a recent project we've we've done. Feel really proud of actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That sounds that sounds fascinating. Yeah, and what I enjoy about that most is it gives us an eye out for the future, where we're going to see athletes go through what we call wellbeing curriculums, look after their mental health from the start to the end of their career. Yeah, because I think one of the things I'm I'm fascinated in, and we'll get to a bit later hopefully, is that kind of tension between. So the traditional clinical, quote unquote, clinical psychologist working with someone who's in a difficult spot. Yeah, anxiety, depression, social issues, you know, relationship issues, whatever, right? Sports psychology, it's this different focus somewhat, right, of helping someone improve their performance or you're trying to do, like in the medical world, what you call like prophylactic. You're mm. trying to prepare someone to keep them in well-being rather yeah. than sort of dealing with it when it all falls apart, that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and so we're sort of interested in that tension because that's such a different world. Like, you know, I work as a, for people who haven't heard this before, I work as a psychologist with mm. cancer patients. Mm. So people are getting cancer treatment and having extreme anxiety or depression or, you know, relationship breakdowns that kind of stuff yeah but i reckon i can make some similarities i mean it sounds odd for me to say that in terms of cancer patients and athletes but they that you're you and i are there for a specific purpose yeah but really there's still the same human issues the same clinical issues that are around anyone in our society is still present aren't they yeah that we still need to work with yeah so yes we might have that specialist knowledge in that particular area or that in particular environment yeah and all the other systems that will kind of work within that the approach is a lot of the time the same yeah yeah we are like we were thinking about with your the lingo right if you don't know what a cancer patient knows or the the scenario then you're useless mm. uh, and like i had an experience recently where i presented at a conference worked with someone who had sort of extreme claustrophobia and because i was familiar with that setting i was able to effectively treat that mm. person you know and that was but if you were a private practitioner with no experience of cancer it just wouldn't have happened yeah what i was thinking about is like why don't we talk a little bit about give us a bit of background on sports psych and then perhaps we'll get into the nuts and bolts for a little bit so tell me what's the what's an average day for a sports psychologist <laughs> like what does that look like so that's a good question well we, for me kind of i can split that into two because i spend obviously time in the practice or or outside the practice yeah so in the practice it's it's pretty simple in terms of it's a it's a day of getting other psychologists clients come and see you individually or as groups or in terms of work that you do yeah so it's all about preparing consulting with that work doing notes sometimes making phone calls doing follow-up 
so doing exercises all that kind of stuff that's in the clinic when i'm going into my clubs or internal roles it's that's where it becomes very different yeah so tell me what are the different sort of formats or environments a sports psych would find themselves in yeah so right now i would probably break into four there's like the internal role so you're actually employed by a club or the sport or yep. the team to to come in and perform your services on a regular basis yep. you know so for me western united i'm there a certain amount of days per week or days what days they go in there to work with uh, the players the coaches the staff you know whoever then there's a consulting kind of roles where you're outside the practice we're going into working with teams or clubs again but they're very much one-off and then there's inside the practice we're working groups group work workshops and we're actually teaching specific mental skills so it's not therapy as such but we're teaching them skills to help with their performance yeah and last is the individual work which obviously give me a, a mixture of mental skill work and the everyday clinical psychology work yeah right it's pretty varied yeah so it's it can be quite varied so for me it's typically now the one-on-ones in the practice um, and the internal roles with the, the semi-regular consulting kind of work yeah and then the, the the rarer kind of workshop so i do for the for groups so internal role like sports psychologist employed for a club right employed for a cricket team football mm. team whatever mm. i guess what does that look like yeah it's well it, it can and it's dynamic in itself so that actual role could be very different so the old question of who's the client yes. um is always one of the more important ones when you start it's like who am i who am i here to service most here like whose priority when i walk in here what what is it you want me to do mm. and who do you want me to look after you know in terms of my role and that look learning those priorities can come in different forms so for me for like for example my current role is much like you know you help the players mostly with their mental health um, but also making sure that they're ready to perform so any kind of performance-based issues that's psychological you know that's my expectation that i work with that and i completely accept that part of the role but i actually i i really believe in a systems approach okay so for me working with coaches and staff is super important because they create the environment mm-hmm. yeah so the language they use and the environment they create for the players actually it actually is a much more efficient way of working because that actually helps the players as a group that they're working with mm-hmm. so for me that's a much preferred way so I would spend a lot of time talk, having conversations with coaches and ask them and including them. So I'm very much with players, although our conversation is always confidential, of course. Yeah. I always encourage them that they can open up and have someone else involved because I find that very really helpful in terms of what they might want to get out of yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me a lot of the you know, child psychology work where you could have a, a child that's not talking very very anxious separation anxiety or you know low mood or or whatever Mm. and yet yes you could work with that child but the child goes home to a family environment and even if the parents are not causing the particular problem Mm. which can frequently be the case but even if they're not like if it's like say kids getting bullied at school like Mm. working with the parents to help create the environment is going to be way way more effective yeah that's right and yeah much more efficient i like that kind of use of that yeah, it's exactly the same thing. If we, it's like looking after the the household environment when the child goes home, you yeah. know, because I mean the reality, the harsh reality is that sport hasn't looked after their athletes all the time. They've been very expendable, mm. um, and that's possibly become worse when this as sports become professional as well. Because it's like it's very transactional. We pay you X amount of money to be here and perform best. We expect this from you. And so that can drop the care in terms of the human involved in that. Really? So, so you reckon it might have actually got worse? Because I guess as an outsider, it's sort of, I hear a lot more about efforts to improve the well-being of players and well-being of sports stars and stuff like that. Yeah, which I, I agree. That's a, I'd say it's more of a recent revolution. Yep. So we're talking the last four to five years, maybe less, three. But before that, when the, the 15, 20 years before that, a sport becomes more, more professional, mm. there's a higher expectation on that athlete to perform yeah and so there's like much more pressure whether intended or not from the environment that they would so you know obviously that creates a lot of performance anxiety if you think to yourself in anything that you do someone hovering over you going you better perform well or else (laughs) typically doesn't make people perform very well no i mean there's that the the classic (laughs) which i'm sure there's a name for it but there's that uh, upside down upside down you in the middle of that you is the peak pressure peak anxiety performance kind yeah, of individual nexus. yep you go beyond that with anxiety and, and your performance drops off yeah that's yeah. right so we have seen i think a revolution that because now i think in those kind of 
those couple of decades of probably not treating athletes very well, now we're hearing a bit more of a revolution. It's okay, no, no, their their well being is really important, and we must look after them. So how do they how they go with coming into a club and then going? All right, uh, this is what I want to do. I want to work with coaches. I want to work with coaching staff. You yep. guys are part of the process. Yeah. How does that how does that fly? Yeah, you need to have you. This is where you need you need coach buying. Yeah. Uh, so I remember when I, I mean, I'm just going to use my current club for the moment because it's Stasia. Um, I remember when I got employed, they said, well, we, we haven't got the head coach employed yet, even though they're employing me at the same time. But we think we've got someone, is it okay if you meet? Because that's, he's going to be really an important person. I said, that's, I'm glad you've offered, for me, that was a good sign because they were thinking it the right way. I would like to think of it. I need the head coach. And I, we need to be form a bond and a link because I think I need him. Next, I need him next to him when I'm working with the players. He needs. We need to be supporting each other in this. Yeah. So yeah, we had a couple of meetings and we and we just got an idea of how does he want? How does he see this working? Yeah. How does he see me fitting into his whole picture? And how do I? Does that feel comfortable for me in terms of performing my role? Yeah. So I think that was done well in yeah. terms of coming together. Because imagine that could. Imagine people could say, "Oh, we'll get a sports psych in," but if there's part of the team that's not the non-playing part yep. it's not on board with that then yep. yeah it's going to be real difficult yeah and I, and I think and, what, well, I think, and then the next thing after we met the next thing we did was myself the head coach and the football director yeah we sat down we, we created a team identity that we all were going to adhere to that we thought was going to represent who we were as a club so anyone walking in they knew what our identity was going to look like yeah, right. and we did that together as the the sports like the head coach and the football director then presented it to the players and then the players because we well, that was a good thing to do before the playing group got together we still need the player buy-in yeah, so yeah. we presented to them and said this is a loose idea of how we see it and we got their words and that, and that was actually I mean, it was an interesting process so we had three key themes with a few dot points next to it but the players said, no, no, we need quotes because that's what resonate with us. Yeah. So that's what they added was the quotation. So then there were there was a couple of little tweaks and changes, but they they added quotations that they could read because that's what resonated with them more strongly than the actual keywords that we created. Mm. So but at least it all hit the mark for all people involved. Yeah. Mm. And then everyone's kind of clear where that's at. That's right. That's fascinating. Mm. Yeah, because I guess like in the hospital system, we're there to help help the patients mm. and I think a psychologist, we have this other sort of unofficial role of helping helping staff with the patients. Hospitals will have a, an ethos or something, but I don't think we, like, it's not like everyone sits down and looks at those quotes or, or looks at that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. For me, that was really, really important starting off. So we're, so just end of highlight, we're a new franchise this year. So we're the first, we're the first initial group for this club that hopefully lasts for a long period of time. Yeah. So whatever we initiated, I thought was a real privilege, but also was a way of, you know, we can get things starting off. You had a clean slate to work from. Yep. So from a sports like point of view, it was a dream. I'm going to make sure that we live and breathe by this yep. and create systems that we talk about this every day. Yep. Mm. Versus say coming into a club. I can imagine coming into an AFL club, doing an internal role there that a club's been there for like over a hundred years, right? Yeah. Some of them. Yeah. And and I mean, even a club that's been around for 20, 30 years, yeah. you know, there'd be a fairly established culture around yeah, that's right. what goes on. And that could be challenging if you see that there's problems with that. That's right. And there's a history or there's things that they don't want to change or yeah. whatever that might be. Um, or take time to change, you know, yeah. and all that's quite reasonable. Uh, it just makes your job a little bit harder. If, particularly if you're trying to make... If you want to do your role as best as you can. So that side of an internal role, you're working with coaching staff, that kind of stuff. But what, that, I mean, that's not all of it. Like what else do you no. do? No. Well, I mean, most of my time now is actually working with the players. So the individual work, I'd still say probably that's still the primary. Yeah. But, you know, I would probably spend in my days, I'd go and spend some time with coaches, just checking with them and checking with sports science staff, doctors, physios, because they generally are across what's exactly what's going on as well. We have wellness checks every day, so you're kind of looking at you're looking at those and see if there's any kind of abnormalities you might just want to check in on. But there's also other staff as well, such as admin staff and so on who are around because they're across things as well in terms of they in terms of what they can contribute. In terms of like knowing what's going on with the players, yeah. that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That reminds me of being in hospital. <laughs> yeah, so you you kind of sweeping the area, picking out for any things that might need following up or conversations that need to be had. Yeah, and so with the individual work. Give us a rundown on that. Like, I mean, if that's not too valuable. The range of issues. Yeah, or like, yeah. I guess what I was thinking about is more like 
this this idea of improving someone's performance or improving their a mental skill for a game, yeah, or their sport, I should say, yeah. I guess what are the com- most common issues that you would be looking at week in week out? Yep. Uh, the number the two most common things that people present with is a performance anxiety and and b lack of confidence. Yeah, right. Um, they're probably the two main ones. And typically, it's after an event, they're either going through a bad bit of form, or they're not being selected, recovering from injury. You know, they. I can still see the the reg, the common thing I still see is the people that aren't in the team or aren't performing in terms of how they expect to. That will generally be the trigger of them consulting with you it's very rare that people at the top of their game going in actually Mike I just need to keep on checking in just because I'm actually at the top of my game and I don't know how I got here yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so like everything else in psychology unfortunately it's very illness focused or deficiency focused yeah right so for a, a team member they don't get selected for the team and then so that's more frequent rather than sort of someone who's like oh I'm, I've been selected but I'm having a bad bad time or a bad patch of form or something yeah like that. yeah yeah and, and and generally you know I know we're going to talk about a different sport later but different sports have different themes or they yeah. have different presenting issues because of just the way that the sport is operated yeah. you know so for example football is a continuous sport meaning okay. it's always operating there's no time to stop and breathe and and recollect yourself the ball's still in play so that would have advantages and disadvantages exactly right, right. So what are that what would for football what would that be like well so i would say i always i always put out a concentration so for me concentration is the number one mental skill issue in most sports overall like i think yep. able to remain as focused as you want to be all the time is actually one of the hardest things to do yeah so the hard thing about a continuous sport is staying focused all the time. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you have periods where you kind of switch off and so on and so forth. However, that also gives you a natural trigger because um, the advantage of it is the someone moves or the ball moves and you've just got to respond as quickly as you can. Yeah. So it stops the freezing component as such, the psychological freezing, because like well, you just you you your body responds to that as well. Yeah. Where I know we're going to talk about it later, but you go to a sport like tennis. Yeah which is stop, start or stagnant. You know, you get time, you get 20 to 30 seconds between each point to kind of recollect yourself and so on. But that doesn't always, that doesn't help you, you know? No, because I was going to say like that, that there'd be something good about a continuous sport because you might not have time to think. Mm. Yeah, you might, you might not have time for complex emotions to actually start to come up. Yep. That, well, you know, I've, I, I effed that up, but hang on, I've just got to get back in there. Yep. And then you know, the, the thing that all psychologists know is like, getting people to go and do the thing that they're afraid of mm. and getting them to do that is one of the best ways to get through a, a, an anxiety or kind of improve their confidence and that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's right. Whereas like, if you've got, I've seen that like cricket, but I also particularly like tennis mm. just because it's current at the moment. If you stuffed up something and then you're just thinking about it, like yeah. and all you're doing is like walking to the back of the court and bouncing a ball. Yeah. That's a lot of time. Yep. It looks like a lot of time. Yeah, it can be. And I, I, I agree, but I'd say that's where, and I say in those sports, the static sports, that's where routines are so important or psychological routines. Okay. Good pick up that you see them at the back of the court bouncing the ball. As a sports psychologist, I hope they're actually going through a whole other process that we can't see or we don't know. So what would that, what would that look like? It would be actually, like I know, like for example, Djokovic just goes into a detail about how he has a camera on his shoulder and he always has a re- re- review of what just occurred in his own mind. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've noticed Djokovic be bouncing the ball a lot, but he, what he's actually doing is checking in that he's, is his mind mind ready to perform so he's actually doing a bit of a, a reset review is like going how am i going am i okay if there's kind of underlying emotion there like anger or frustration you know he might take some breaths or something like that to kind of calm himself yeah. and go okay what am i about to do now you know i'm going to serve to the wide to the forehand side whatever it might be yeah you know, and, and and follow that executional plan and then it's when he knows that he's clear and ready to go in terms of the next point Wow. So he calls it like the little camera on the shoulder where he kind of reviews his own head and just makes sure that he's ready to perform. Mm. That's fascinating. Do you, just as a therapist question, mm. a lot of this stuff's all about performance, right? Mm. For you as a someone who's a sports psych, but as a therapist, you're performing. Mm. Do, do you ever start to employ some of these things for yourself? Okay, I'm going into a difficult, potentially a difficult consult. Do you ever employ these kinds of things yourself? Or? Yeah, absolutely. So you're exactly right. I mean, we're all performers and that's, and again, working with coaches, they're performers too, right? Mm. So they have the same frustration. In fact, coaches... I think have more frustration because they've got no physical outlet for it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and they're generally all ex-athletes or highly I, I've competitive people. I've definitely seen some AFL coaches slam some things around. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, there it's like it's like it's boiling inside of them with no physical outlet, and they can't control it. Yeah, yeah, and they, and exactly, they can't control it as much as they would like to. So they're just getting more and more outraged as it goes on. <laughs> so yeah, they are. But you know what's important for that is what does that do for players when they see that? Okay. Yeah, how do they respond when they see their coach angry and frustrated and yeah wanting to wanting to burst out? Do you get some like real parental dynamics yes. stuff that occur with, between coaches and players? Is that is is that that's what immediately springs to mind? Yeah, absolutely, there is. Yeah, and particularly you know a lot of men team sports there's a lot of that father-son dynamic you know yeah, right. a lot of fathers in previous times are pretty hard taskmasters at home and and coaches can be as well and so there's a very similarity of the athlete or the the, the son trying to please their dad of the athlete trying to please their coach mm. and so this is where again coaches have a really important role and they don't even know this a lot of the time that they're they're looking up the athletes are looking up to them and they're desperately trying to be loved by them mm. and so they don't know how powerful they are yeah, and I can imagine me one of those things that people just don't have an insight to, like, mm. and, and you would never because it's not not spoken about. Mm. You know, the, the coach would just do their thing; they're in a position of power, so the players would have a relationship with the coach mm. that is really, really one sided. Not like, not unlike, say, a music fan or, or an actor or like, or fans of actors or things like that would have a relationship with these people who were in their lives but the actors were sort of almost removed from them or something like that if that analogy is not too distinct yeah but I think what you're highlighting there's a there's a clear power imbalance power imbalance yeah to be fair they don't even know about a lot of the time they don't even realise that they're kind of carrying it or that yeah. the athlete's looking up to them that uh, yeah. so much but and, and I can, you, know, you can imagine also like could flow the other way the coaches would be reacting to particular team members you know if they resemble a particular kind of family pattern that was helpful unhelpful yeah that kind of stuff well i've found the dynamic i noticed the most about coaches is they obviously they get a wide range of personalities and so on yeah that they yeah they'll be they'll be ones most coaches to get to where they've got to have had to employ a lot of mental skills in their time to get there yeah right so they're generally very the hard workers so generally a lot of very talented athletes because they're so talented it hasn't taken a lot of thought how to get to where they've got to. Yep. So they've never had to really... So good coaches have had to really think and consider um, mm. to get to the point where they want to because they had to probably substitute less less ability yep. as such. Yeah. So coaches are really effort-focused, which is a good thing. But they really they typically... I'm being a bit generalizing a bit here, but they'll typically like the guys who had to work hard to get there because that's what they had to do. Yeah, so just see see the ones that they were similar to. Yes, see themselves in it rather than the ones that had it easier potentially. Yeah, the highly talented ones that don't don't seemingly try as hard or work as hard to get to where they want can sometimes really inflame uh, the coach's temper the most. I find. Yeah, right. Yeah, because mm. I guess yeah, and there is the, I guess a bit of a stereotype of the prima donna, very talented sports player mm. who the, who doesn't get along with the coach and the yeah. coach doesn't get along with them. And you know, you'd imagine that some of that dynamic could play out, which is just like, man, you're good, yeah. but we, you could be even better. Yeah, and and the talented players like, yeah. Yeah, I'm 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 good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It may not mean as much to them, and that's that's hard, yeah. you know, from a coaching point of view, because of what's driving them. So tell um, me about that. Like, it may not mean as much to them. That's like that's a there's a that's a great statement. What yeah. does that mean? Well, sometimes I actually notice that the coaches want to win or want success more than the actual playing group does. So what does that do to the dynamic? Because who's you know who's driving this in many ways? Yeah. And so I think this always goes back to task ego motivation where, you know, we know to get the best out of athletes, to make them task focused, for them to see them improve, their own skills improve and so on and so forth. But how do we, particularly in professional sport these days where everything is kind of structured and laid out for them, how do we become them be more empowered to kind of drive exactly what they're doing? Yeah, okay. So when you say task focus, it's like, so they have a goal that they're working towards yes. improving. But yeah. then if everything's laid out, it's like, oh, well, we've got the gym on this day and, mm. and track and field on that thing mm. and then the weights on this and then, mm. you know, blah, blah, blah. It's all laid out. Mm. Yeah, you could lose a little, you could lose that individuality. Yeah, that's right. That's sort of what you mean. Yeah, like you look at, and I still see, like I see amateur athletes now or athletes that aren't professional, such as track and field, even Olympians who are track and field. Yeah. They are so, they are so highly driven because they have to run so much of these things themselves yep. um, and operate them themselves, but they're engaged in it. Yeah. 
because you're involved in it as a you're choosing to go and do that and that's one of the things the in one of the fields like mandated clients to therapy mm. so like in forensic settings right yeah. so pe- the court will say this person needs to go to therapy mm. and there's a lot of those people who don't want to be there yep right if you've got a patient who wants to be there versus a patient who doesn't want to be there well it's it's pretty obvious who's going to do better yeah that's right on, on average yeah so yeah that's sort of what you mean right yeah, you think for a moment in your own profession. So if I was, um, you know, if I told you right now, there's going to be this person who's going to be coaching you as to be the best psychologist or the best health psychologist yep. you can be. and But they'll do everything for you. They'll tell you what to read, how to write your notes, who to see. So when you go in tomorrow, when you go to work, <laughs> it's all going to be laid out for you, the structure of your day. Actually, I'd, I reckon I'd buck up against it. I really? I wouldn't want it. You would have some light relief for a, a, little, a period of time. You didn't have to do any of that planning or whatever. You just walk in and it was all kind of set out for you and done for you. Yeah. Well, actually, yeah, maybe. <laughs> the days I do like as a, as a psychologist is when I've got a lot of clients booked in, see a patient, write a note, see a patient, write a note. Like there's not too much. There's a bit of structure to it. Yeah, there's a bit of structure. You know, I'm not having to be creative about having to go, all right, well, what are the other priorities mm. that are needing to be addressed? Like, mm. it's, yeah, it's simpler. Yeah. But I guess what I, was, what I was thinking about is like, maybe I don't like being controlled. <laughs> no, like, <laughs> well, that's right. And, and there are athletes like that too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. The complexity of that. But I guess what I'm suggesting is in, at, in in some time though, you won't be, even though there'll be some light relief because you don't have to worry about the planning of it, yeah. how the do we get the best out of you by doing that on a long-term basis? Probably not because no, we're choosing it for you. It's probably boring. Yeah. To, like if, if that makes sense. Mm. If I ask you, okay, Hunter, what are the what are the things you need to be the best psychologist you can do? And you wrote it down, you planned it out and blah, blah, blah. I go, okay, now go and follow up and do it. And you did it yourself. Yeah. I can you get a lot more energy from that. Yeah. Yeah, much more buy-in and that mm. kind of stuff. And yeah, in the same token, I guess you'd, you can cut both ways, right? If you fail mm. fail at a goal that's important to you versus a fail a goal that's not important to you, one's yep. going to have a bigger impact than the other, that kind of thing. Yeah. So I try and teach the the coaches I'm with is they they'll get a good sign about their relationship with the playing group or what environment they're creating. If players are coming up making suggestions, we should be doing this. And I say, if they ever, whatever they suggest, you always say yes, almost blindly. Yeah. Because you've got them engaged and already you're going to get so much more, a better performance out of them just by that. Yeah, really. Mm. Do you reckon that, and that plays out? You've seen that. Yeah, absolutely. Michael's nodding, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. Like, you know, you if you get, I say the best indicator about the relationships you've got with your players and how they see you in terms of being open to approach is when they come up and they offer suggestions and ask you things about what more they could do or how they could really work on this and so on and so forth. Mm. How do you know when things are not going right in a club? <laughs> like I mean, the, 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 the flip side to that. Yep. Really low communication. Okay. So low dialogue, particularly between these groups. Players are just almost nodding their head going along, but they're not having a real input to the day-to-day operations side of things. Yep. And what I'd say, what I call kind of fear avoidance. I mean, they're common words we use in psychology, isn't it? Mm. Where people are fearful, people are doing things based out of fear or people are avoiding certain tasks because they don't know what's going to happen or they're worried about what may happen yeah. if, they, if they were to do that. And do you get then in those environments the the structure of a team thinking about just the actual team rather than the coaching for a second like the you know that that's that's when having lead team leaders and captains or, or you know people who are part of the they always talk about the, you know the senior team in the, mm. in, the, in the football team or whatever it is that's an important role at that point right yeah I think so I, I'm a bit of a fan of I mean look I think there's lead, the, the leadership groups and people got different leadership ideas group, and perspectives yeah. of it but I mean this is what I like about leadership groups because they actually are the conduit between the playing group and the coaching group yeah. they almost represent they're the middle managers if you like yeah. but they're so important because they can get both parties on board or keep them more connected yeah. is probably the best word i like to use that we're all on the same page here and it helps ease grievances as well what do you mean ease grievances because let's say the players and the coaches will have grievances with each other from time to time yeah but how like any other relationship but how they communicate and sort through that is super important what leaders are able to do is actually do that for them so you know the coach would might go to i'll say the one of the leadership players and go is, is such and such okay or they seem to be they're, they're asking about a particular player that leadership 
player might go to this, that other player and just ask them how they're going or checking in or he might just go to the coach no I'm not sure but I think you can go and ask him yourself he'll be okay mm. if you just go and approach him where the coach may not have done that because he didn't want to upset the player or whatever that might have been so it can give that kind of consent or validation of yeah no you're on the right track you probably should go and follow that up yeah. or if there's a problem is yeah no, I think we need to go and talk this out together hmm. um, or at least play from the playing group go yeah we actually really like when you did that <laughs> it made us feel very uneasy and tense and I don't think we performed very well as a, as a result of it how, how much are you involved in setting up some of those dynamics or ironing out those dynamics yeah. well I've kind of I've kind of led leadership groups before and that's the space where we can talk about those type of things yeah right so you get them together yeah get them to talk a bit yeah yeah but really, it's it's really. I mean, it sounds really simple, but it's actually the promotion of openness. Most of the time, is if there's a problem, let's go and talk about it, yeah. you know, and find out if we can kind of sort through this. Yeah, it sounds really basic, but unfortunately, a lot of uh, a lot of these groups aren't very good at that. Yeah, but I don't know. Like, I like I think that that makes sense. I, I think as an individual clinician working as a psychologist, that it's taken me a long time as a, to become comfortable with myself and comfortable with the fact that. I can just I can deal with what comes out of a patient's mouth mm. in terms of so you know I had a situation this week where uh, this patient was I, I said look do you actually want to be here do you actually mm. want to talk about this stuff are you ready to talk about what's going on for you mm. uh, in terms of your illness mm. she's like no no I'm not I mean and so we had some conversation around how she could manage stuff without having to do that mm. um, but Hunter five years ago. I don't think would have done that. Yeah, right. You know, like I think I would have been, I would have kept trying, kept trying, kept trying. Whereas we had that open discussion, and I think that 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 then freed us up a little bit. Yeah, and then we can talk about the fact that that's that's where she was at because that's yeah. really what we needed to talk about. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and so I think it takes. I think there's a skill thing, but I think there is that. I think this is what's going on. So I'm mm. just gonna have to call it. And yeah, it, that takes that takes practice. Yeah, it does. And and sometimes, you know, you don't know how it's going to roll. Like, you know, there was a time when I myself and a dietitian were concerned about the, the management of kind of weight and skin folds. And it was creating, I believed, we believed it was creating anxiety in the playing group. So we reported it back to the sports science staff and the coaches and so on and so forth. And, you know, there's really a lot of defensive behaviors. Oh, this is what we, this is the norm, this is what we do. And so on and so forth. I was like, we're not here to say it's wrong. We're here to say this is what we've noticed. Yeah. And so we're just trying to provide that kind of feedback. And if we don't do it, I'm really we worried about the connection between you guys and the playing group. Yeah. And also some of the things that they're doing, I think, is actually putting their performance at risk anyway, which is what is important to you. So I think it's important we have this conversation. Yeah. But sometimes you get some defensive responses out of it. Yeah. Because when you think about it, you know, sometimes where the delivery is a bad news, yeah. you know, of unhealthy patterns or that's being created. I don't think this player can perform. Mm. Or like, oh, this person's really struggling with how which you guys dealt with them or something that, yeah. that's what you mean yeah sometimes you are that deliverer of a bad news of what's actually might be happening and people don't sometimes want to hear that because it's what they've always known this is like well we're here this is like they'll say this is a high performance environment or um this is what this is how it's always been or you know i didn't have any of that when i was playing or you know those type of things yeah so it's a it's a real shift for them you know to kind of hear that yeah because they've automatically thought because they went through it that that's what the norm is. Yeah, it's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think what's interesting is you, you might not even know that that's the way you think about it. Mm. Like you might, oh, but like, of course this is fine. Like, but you would never have ever examined it. No. You know, that kind of thing. Like, you know, raising, like I'm a parent, I raised my children and it's sort of really interesting to suddenly kind of think about, you know, my impact as a parent on... <laughs> you know, and impact on my behavior and think about like, oh, well, this was my experience growing up and then hang on. Some of it's automatic. Yeah. When, it's pulled, when someone calls you out on something or that kind of stuff, it's an interesting process. Well, yeah, it's a bit like the whole, in terms of the parenting side, it's like go to your room. Is like that was kind of, that was always a catchphrase for a punishment, wasn't it? Like yeah. you're not behaving, go to your room. Yeah. As, and I said to myself, when I was, you know, I'm a parent, I'm like, I want their room to be really nice, safe, pleasant place for them. So why would I be sitting there to punish them? Yeah. But every now and then I say it out of no, you know, and it's in, re, in a reaction to something that's just occurred. I'm like, why don't I just say that? Yeah. I don't believe that. Yeah, it, when, when you've got a cooler head <laughs> yeah. and that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, so these processes are like, like, so I guess what you're talking about is like, you know, we have, when we're dealing with 
people mm. and we did with situations. We have these sort of, I was going to say hardwired yeah. or early wired responses yep. that have come from somewhere. <laughs> yep. And yeah, yeah, job of psychologists is try and figure out what are we seeing here and like, can we iron that out a bit, right? Yeah. And how is it helpful? So for me in terms of that player coach connection is what's going to help them connect best? Yeah. Because we, we know, what, I mean, we're getting to see this more and more now in teams, the more connected teams are the more successful teams and the happier teams. Yeah, right. Because you talked about performance, anxiety and confidence. Like, mm. uh, I imagine there's lots of different ways to treat that, work with that, depending on what is going on. Mm. But I guess, g- give, me an, give me an example of one of each or, or I don't know if they're even se- it's separable, but... Yeah. Well, a lot of the time the anxiety is, you know, that they've kind of... And they're kind of, the, I guess, both can be kind of worked together. Yeah. But it's really about, you know, it's about... They're, they're so outcome focused. So because I'm not being selected or because I didn't perform this, I mustn't be going very well. When really that's a that's a uh, maladaptive belief that they kind of created really. Yep. Based on a, a small sample size or, or someone's opinion or yep. whatever that might be. As opposed to, so it's, you know, I get you actually asked to go into depth. You know, what is it about that you don't think you did very well? And they actually kind of narrowed down is it actually, there's probably not that much there. No. It's a binary scenario really, isn't it? Like, mm. so... This is the kind of thing I say to people is like, you know, someone says to me, like, if you're going to set a goal, mm. it's not like, oh, I'm going to clean my house this week. Mm. It's like, well, you could clean 99% of that house. <laughs> you could come in and say, I haven't cleaned my house. And yeah. you, I couldn't argue with that because mm. that 1% is still done. Whereas like, if you set a goal of like, well, I'm going to clean for an hour every day. Yeah. Then that's much better goal, right? And so that's that kind of like that 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 changes that focus and then yeah, yeah back to smart, yeah, smart goals, smart goals, <laughs> smart goals always hold up, you know, <laughs> specific, measurable, mm. uh, achie- uh, achievable, realistic, and time oriented. There you go. There we go. <laughs> yeah. So and probably the other approach I really am based on is really strength focused. Okay. So get the, I always get them. I always get them to think about what. Tell me the time when you perform well. And what were the ingredients for that and so on? Like a real strengths focus, I think, is really useful. Did you, did you, strengths focus, was that something you learn about during your clinical training? Is that something that's kind of come later? Because I don't think I'm a strengths focused clinician. At yeah, all. yeah. Um, no, you're right. I didn't get it, wasn't part of my training. I guess I learned it through the, I guess, uh, learning more about positive psychology yep. in terms of that framework and working on that. So, where I learned the more the values and strengths based work. Yeah, but I find it obviously really useful because obviously we're trying to look, we're trying to think about a, you know high performance environment. We're thinking about what makes them work as high performers. Mm. But sometimes it's kind of it's an odd thing where they don't even know sometimes. Yeah. So asking the question is getting them engaged with when they're performing well. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's interesting because when I think about when I've chatted to you about psychology, the phrase that I walk away with is like you've got a can-do attitude. Mm. Like you know it's like a. Like, let's do this stuff. Mm. You know, how can we do it? Let's do this kind of stuff, mm. which is very different. I'm like more like, how are you? <laughs> like, which bits, which bits broken? Let's, yeah. let's talk about that bit. Yeah, um, I'm happy to sit with that for a while. Which I mean, you are as well. But mm. I, I, it's that different, different therapeutic shift, different framework shift. If that kind of makes sense. And I think we, we obviously we we need to absorb and learn what is broken, whatever that thing, or whatever they believe is broken. Yeah, I actually believe a lot of the time it's perception. You know, when dealing with a lot of perfectionistic type of personalities. And so it's their perception that they're not performing well. Hmm. So I need to listen to that and hear it out. I need to hear that information to kind of trump it as well and just yeah. say that it's actually, can you see how that's not possibly true? You know, to challenge that a bit more. Yeah. Um, so you do still need to absorb that part because, and like everybody else, they need to express it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because once once it's out of you, then you can examine it. Yeah. You know, it's a bit like a player watching a replay of their performance and then they could potentially go, oh, that's what, that, that's what I do. Mm. That's how I kick. That's mm. what everyone tells me. Okay, I'll change that or something like that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So the perception of themselves is strong, I think, yeah. in terms of how they see themselves and the story or that they've kind of created in their own mind about where they're at and how they're going and so huh. on and so forth. Yeah, right. How do you go about doing that? It's like a... I can imagine you could break that down in so many different ways mm. as a clinician. Mm. Like you get them to write a story about it or you could get them develop it over time or I don't know. What, what are some of the ways you would do that? Yeah, I go... Yeah, I, well, generally, well, I think a story is very much linked to belief systems. So who they believe they actually are 
or where do they fit at this particular time in terms of the team or the club, whatever that might be, is, you know, I'm not playing because the coach doesn't like me. I'm not playing because the coach doesn't believe that I can do it or I've always felt that way. And yeah. um, I seem to be constantly in this position where I can't, I can't get into the team or I can't please the coach to how he wants me to play or yeah. whatever it might be. So it kind of defaults to the, this is very familiar and it's happening again. Yeah. Well, you could imagine, yeah, or like you could imagine someone who isn't used to dealing with failure, the one that's always been really, really good, then missing out for whatever reason. Mm. And then that just triggering a massive crisis for that person. Well, that's actually a really, I actually really like that one because it's in a I say like, because I think that one's really interesting. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because I see this particularly in, in my private practice more. I see it in junior sport and I reckon a lot of my, a lot of, people presenting to me are 14 15 16 17 kind of age group wow. where they've been kind of young prodigies they've got to hit their first hurdle in the first time in their career so they've obviously narrowed in on a particular sport or performance but they hit their first hurdle and they've really struggling to cope mm. and generally their parents have seen them the change in mood and so on and so they brought them in or recommended them to see me and it's just like oh no this is your first little hurdle that you've gone through and um, you still need to kind of you know you'll work through this and you'll reground and you'll pick up again yeah and actually, this is actually going to be very helpful for you. Yeah. I worked for a while where we would do quick access for people who were in crisis to mm. sort of help with people who are at risk of suicide and things like that. And what was interesting was we got a lot of university students um, and some postgraduate students. And some, of, not always, but some of it, this group of people who did very well at school and didn't really have to work that hard. And actually did quite well at university and didn't really have to work that hard. And then they get into postgrad, and it's the first time they've ever struggled mm. academically. Mm. And you know, this has been a big part of their life, right? Is these oh, I'm the smart one, <laughs> you know? And then and then suddenly their PhD supervisors like, well, your work's not good enough, mm. you know, and you need to improve it, and because mm. that's a inherent part of postgraduate. Mm. work is to you know always be pushing to improve it mm. and yeah i definitely saw this, this this spike of mental health problems within that population yeah and it sounds this sounds a little similar absolutely it? it is yeah. and and it's social comparison you know yeah uh, like even though the teammates is uh, i'm i'm better or he's in front or um yeah, right. what do i need to do to get ahead of him as opposed to you no know, what do you need to do to get better for yourself you know that kind of social comparison part's important too yeah. yeah, I was going to say that would be very different to individual sports, but then I guess maybe it wouldn't, like, will you be comparing against other competitors rather than... Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Exactly, and then teammates, which makes it obviously tricky, um, yeah. makes it more complex to kind of work with. Yeah. Because right. actually, and most of the time it's not because it's their competitive nature that's coming out there. It's not because they don't like them or they're not mates or they can't be. It's just yeah. that they, they're competitive. Mm. Yeah, right. And and you've got to do, and you're also working with that careers can be short. Okay. Some are on one-year contracts, some are on five. You know, some are, some are 20, some are 33, going for the same spot. Hmm. So you have a wide range of ages as well. Yeah. Is there an imposter syndrome? In- oh, 100%. Yeah. You know, like in the current group we've got, we've got some about eight guys in their 30s and they're just, they're, just so, they're just so comfortable in themselves. They've been doing this for years now. They're just seasoned pros. Yeah. You know? they're, not, they're not really reactive to anything. Yeah. We've got a few guys in their kind of mid 20s. We've got lots of guys kind of 23 and under, kind of 18 to 22. And yeah, I'm um, huge amount. Mm. You know, am I ever going to make this? Really yeah. is the question they constantly ask themselves. Yeah. Am I going to do it? Yeah. Can I do this? Yeah. And kind of making it's really important because it's kind of their identity because it's how they've always seen themselves is I'm going to be a professional player. Yeah. But if you're not playing, you know, have I made it and do I belong? And Yeah. It's kind of what is the, that paradoxical thing where you almost have to i think for a lot of things you almost have to not care so much about that and then that frees up some pressure and then that actually allows you to examine yourself and Mm. kind of go oh hey maybe i do need to work on this skill or that skill or Mm. you know or it reduces the pressure and so you're you can you actually are freer to perform in a in a different kind of way which is why, and you're 100% right, which is what I think we're getting better at now is make sure you do something else away as well as being an athlete. Okay. So, what do you mean by that? Study, work, go and be somebody else apart yeah. from just being an athlete. Yeah. And we're, we're doing so much better at that now than what we used to because yeah. what you're saying is 100% right. There's going to be that kind of balance or another identity that they can turn to because the reality, and this is the harsh reality is, is they may not be an athlete next year. Yeah. 
that's the, that is the harsh reality but it's, it's always there in my mind but going doing something else can ease that more than anything else yeah that that, that old-fashioned idea of life complexity mm. you, know, you, you get that's why we get a lot of mental health problems in farmers and things like that because they their life is wrapped up in a farm mm. which is you know subject to floods and droughts yeah. and international prices and stuff like that and if that's not if that's going well they're fine if it's yeah. not going well then not so good and so you get a lot of people who really really struggle i had one um great kind of session the other day with a with a player who has been quite flat and so on and so forth and i just said what was the last time you just did something for joy mm. <laughs> and it was really he must have he's back 19 or 20 and yeah you could just see he's like going, i don't know and i said what is it you do for joy and he goes I don't know. Yeah. It's like he'd been so driven on this pathway mm-hmm. that he actually forgot actually what he enjoys. Yeah. So he's kind of role jobbers during the week is actually trying a few things that he used to enjoy or just throwing himself in different things. Yeah. I've had similar conversations with yeah. a lot of people in the cancer world. Like they're busy, busy, busy with looking after the kids and, and going to medical appointments, stuff like that. And you're like, so seen a movie lately? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Or, or whatever it is. Yeah. And I, I think those those conversations I think are surprisingly challenging for people to have yeah oh fuck yeah I haven't maybe I haven't been doing that yeah and this is where drive is this kind of paradoxical thing right we always people love drive particularly coaches and sporting clubs and so on because the highly driven they are they're probably the more you're going to get out of them the more competitive they'll be etc etc but you know what's too much you know and these are the questions we've got to ask what are we doing for fun are we still connecting? Mm. Have we got another identity in the background if this doesn't work out? Yeah. You know, I think these are the key questions we're asking now. Does enjoyment... How important is enjoyment of the game? It's a really good question. I think very important. But I think it's a good question because I think... Uh, I guess my, my op, if I was being... Expressing my observations here, I actually don't see it that often. You know, that kind of pure enjoyment. Yeah. So generally, obviously these athletes get into it because a they're very good or b they loved it or both yeah. but when you actually make a career out of it and make it a something you do every day and you dedicate yourself to i think some of the joy gets lost mm. but again go back to the question and that's not for you know i don't want to be it's not, I don't want to make it sound like that for everyone but i think the common question is okay how do we make this more enjoyable again yeah or it's probably unrealistic to expect that some the reasons that you enjoyed it in the first place are the reasons that you uh, have later on, mm. right? You know, yeah. I mean, there may be some 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 element of it, mm. but I mean, anything about it, any kind of performer, musicians yeah. or whatever it might be. Yeah, you know the the thrill of being a musician initially might be com- you know completely washed off mm. uh, five years down the track, ten years, whatever. And and the freedom of just enjoying playing music as opposed to oh, this is you know, your job and you're going to make yeah. a living out of it. Yeah, that doesn't. That, doesn't sound as, as enjoyable already does it that could tighten up yeah yeah and then become successful then you might give it to enjoyment but there's a, still a long period of you know and people sort of i think can get themselves locked in rules like oh this is the way that i do stuff mm. and then so they can kind of blink in themselves in well, i'm thinking more in a creative zone but i mm. imagine it happens in sport like this, this is the ways i do stuff mm. and then that can obviously start to fail for whatever reason mm. and then people get really really stuck mm. yeah helping someone branch out you're smiling <laughs> oh i'm just thinking of another player who's who again was similar in terms of not finding enjoyment anymore and he took some time away and he discovered he's uh uh, boyhood love of skateboarding again so skateboarding everywhere is what he started doing he didn't walk he didn't do it just started skating everywhere and it's kind of interesting because that most professional athletes they're not allowed to do kind of other activities a for fatigue but, but b for injury for injury you know and he actually he actually did fall off and um hurt himself a little bit he got some stitches and so on he was fine but but it was always it, the, the question was then going so what what's the balance here between the psychological recovery and the freedom to live life as you usually would versus the physical safety so you can perform and train every day and so, every so week. you can do your quote-unquote job yeah yeah so i mean i think as a rule we've always been very lenient on that make sure the physical stuff's taken care of first i guess i feel like it's my role is to go well maybe they need to do some other risk-taking sport behaviors to feel free again and so they come here with a fresh mind and a fresh approach and can just love being here again yeah and they don't part of be frustrated about the fact that they you know oh we have to be so careful and all this kind of stuff yeah 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 fascinating tell me a pet peeve about sports psychology what's something that kind of i don't know frustrates you about 
you know, wish you could do better or more of or and it doesn't always quite work. I don't know. <laughs> well, you probably already heard in this conversation is like the pet peeve is the, the organization or the, the team or whatever that comes up to me and approaches me going, uh, would they want me to work with a playing group? And I'm like, okay, what about the coaches and so on being involved? They go, no, no, we just want you to work with the players. It's like, oh, right. So, you know, it's like, as in like that they have nothing to do with the psychological component of the players mm. with them. They're kind of completely, they're completely disconnected to it. Yeah. Or the other one is they only approach you to come and consult with them uh, when there's been a significant problem. So someone's had a panic attack. So therefore we need a psychologist on board to resolve it. Yeah. So it's a very much a focus on what's has happened as opposed to, okay, what's the theme of what we can do here in a more proactive approach. Yeah. How interesting. Mm. What keeps you coming back? Cause you, you sports psych has been such a big part <laughs> of what you do for a long time. In the professional right now, it's actually the best time to be a sports psych. There's much more there's much more focus on the mental side of things, both mental health but also the psychological part of performance. Mm. So I think the idea of how I would want it to run, I'm actually seeing a change, meaning I'm getting I'm getting a bit more of a say of how I like to operate it as opposed to being put in the bottom corner room and letting players come and see me when they need to. Yeah. Um, where we're a much more proactive model. You know, there's a there's a there's a curriculum that we're rolling out that is proactive. And I think we're more and more on the way there. What What's exciting about that for you? Like your face is just completely yeah. up. Like, well, we're allow we're allowing that the you know the mind drives the body. So we we're getting time where we're getting the mind right, so the body can then follow suit and perform at its best. Mm. So I think we're getting the chain correct, and more corrected in yeah. terms of how it wants to work. It's, it sounds like the, you're getting more space as yep. a psychologist to do it. Yeah, that's do, right. Yeah, and then that's always exciting, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it's much more exciting when you actually you're you're seen as a significant part of the structure and the operation of what's occurring. Mm. So, for example, because everyone, you know, anyone can come in, any of these athletes can come in and train every day and just say yes and I'll do it and so on and so forth. But how well could they do it if they really wanted to or they were really focused on doing it to the best of their ability? Yeah. And what if there was something that I could do to help them get to that point? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that that's where it's interesting because you don't want all robots doing the same thing. Yeah, I do well. I wouldn't need the individual sessions really anymore because it'd be so proactive, yeah. and it's so collective, and we're doing it in a group that you know those the need for those kind of one-on-one consultations are very low. Hmm. We're just fine-tuning at the end. Hmm. Hmm. Well, it's been great to talk to you. It's Thanks. been it's been so interesting. <laughs> Anything else before we? Yeah, just the, well, the, the most kind of recent thing, I know you like talking about some quirky kind of new concepts and so on. And the one that's kind of come across me recently, I was being asked to write an article and I'm going to write an article and do some research into it. It's a concept called endurance amnesia. Endurance amnesia is when um, we do something and generally if it's an endurance sport, that's why it's called endurance, where it's a long bike ride or a marathon run or whatever. And it's extremely painful. Yeah. Uh, and, but we go and even though we, and we enjoy it, we get, we get some satisfaction at the end, but we actually we're in a lot of pain doing it yeah so endurance amnesia is actually forgetting how much we hated it or how much pain we're in and we go and do it again <laughs> so uh cyclist uh page has asked me to write an article on this so i've done a bit of research and we're going to write an article about it, the idea that do we forget the pain we put ourselves through for the ultimate the ultimate achievement or success this is basically like childbirth yes pregnancy that's that's really where I was that's in the research yeah yeah right yeah. how do mums go through it again after so much pain the first time. Yeah, mm. I, yeah. I've I've seen some live births. Um, yep, all power to you. <laughs> I'm glad I didn't have to do that. So yeah, there's a, I haven't seen that term being used again. But watch this space. We'll we'll see if we can uh, we either bring it bring it to everyone's attention for the first time, or start using it on a more common basis. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on Two Strings Pod. If people thanks want to know me. more about you, uh, where can they find you? Where, where, give us uh, your details. Themindroom.com.au is probably the easiest page, the web page, because all my other details there. And look out for all the workshops. We've just put our new uh, workshop planner for the 2020. So all well-being and performance yep. by myself and my business partner, Joe Mitchell. So anyone wants, is interested in any of those topics, please come along. And I'll put the link in the show notes. So Thank you. if anyone's interested to that, then they can uh, just click on that and check Michael out at the Mind Room. And uh, <laughs> yeah, thanks for coming on Two Shrinks Pod. Thanks very much, Hunter. Cool. Mm-hmm.